Hello and welcome. I am Haini. I'm Simon. And I'm Alexander. We are knee deep in tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 225, recorded on May 9th, 2023. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We are back. With Alexander. Exactly. We, we managed to drag him out of the water. Yes. Um, apparently I can swim-ish. Uh, <laughs> but now I'm stuck in... Oh, you, oh you're going to like this. So I'm in uh, Dordrecht, which is the oldest town in the Netherlands, apparently. And uh, right next to Dordrecht is a very, very small village called Gravendel. And uh, it turns out that there are two toll roads in the entire Netherlands. One is going to Belgium. The other one is going to Gravendel. So every day when I'm going to the customer, I have to pay two euros to drive through a small stretch of tunnel. <laughs> it's just wonderful. But, but it, sounds exactly, it, it sounds exactly like Motalabroen. Where you pay yeah, the much. equivalent of, I think it's 50 cents, to drive over mm. a 400 meter long bridge. Ah. Well, there we and go. Like, well, th yeah. this is two euros, so. Yeah, that, that's it's a fair amount. Should be a good tunnel. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's highly overrated, <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> and then speaking, speaking of overrated, by the way, you have some Microsoft 365 news. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and he's back with a vengeance. <laughs> exactly. And now you're touching on my domains. And that's Ooh. what we're talking about. Domains. Well I know. So um, <gasps> a lot of Microsoft 365 services will, uh, from uh, very, very soon, start to use a new domain, which is cloud.microsoft which should highly simplify when you allow for URLs through your firewalls or, or proxies mm -hmm. or whatever you, you want to use. So it will now be teams.cloud.microsoft and sway.cloud.microsoft and so on, onedrive.cloud.microsoft. And this will only affect the Microsoft 365 services for now. And there are a ton of discussions on why not extending this, but... At this point, it will be Microsoft 365 services that will benefit from this unified domain, which should improve uh, the life of a lot of network technicians, especially. But my question is, how many do actually use this? I have customers that do. But, but would you say that you often encounter organizations like your customers, which have limitations on, on URLs and so on? Occasionally, it's it's not everywhere, but yeah, occasionally mm. it is yeah. there. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, especially mm -hmm. Haney, but also Simon. Uh, the the customers you face that are um, that, that that want to to take benefit of this, mm -hmm. do they do filtering because of actual security requirements, or do they do filtering because someone had told them someday that that was something you should do so are, are they are they asking for this for the right reasons if, if if that makes sense 
<laughs> well, that brings me to another question that how often are security because you stated security requirements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how often are security requirements somebody just told you to do or and how often are they thought through actually like what oh. is the security effect? So, so I'll true. answer with a question. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Simon, to to be absolutely serious, I would love to have a a focus segment where we discuss exactly that. Yep. How do, how do you take security uh, recommendations at face value and what do you make make of them if you will absolutely happy to do that i have an ongoing project with one of my biggest customers now where we do exactly that so absolutely and i would say that personally and now i will get a lot of angry feedback on this uh, i don't see why you would do this if you don't have specific networks which should only be limited to certain URLs. So basically, instead of controlling this on every single endpoint and never ever being able to have a complete blacklist or whitelist either direction, just have network segments where you want to limit this. It can be like DM sets or similar network segments. And there you only allow certain URLs. So one example of where I could see a value in this would be for Azure Virtual Desktop, where uh, you could use like Azure Firewall or whatever to only allow for these services, but you don't want them to use YouTube as an example. But uh, I, I think mm. URL filtering is highly overrated. And I know that I have a lot of colleagues that feel the absolute opposite of it. But but it's good. And I also like uh, that when Microsoft explains why cloud.microsoft, uh, they compare it to the uh, top-level domain .gov. <laughs> so basically, it should have the same trustworthiness as the .gov uh, TLD. So it's good. Uh, next one, and speaking of one of these new URLs, which would then be onedrive.cloud.microsoft, we have a ton of news for OneDrive, which is now the new OneDrive again. And it's supposed to be fast, organized, and personalized. And uh, based on our success with my OneDrive-based OneNote, uh, I do not think that neither Haney nor Alexander agrees on either of these things. So... <laughs> We, we hope that this new OneDrive will um, improve significantly. Is it going to be faster, uh, organizationaler, and personalizer? <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> and it's actually like my, my daughter asked my wife today, uh, Mommy, are you big? And, <laughs> and uh, her mom asked her, Okay, compared to what? Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, so it might be like it's fast compared to nothing, <laughs> and, and yeah, I I totally agree on that. Uh, so in OneDrive, especially uh, in the browser, I would say you now have a bunch of new features. The things I personally really like are that you now have one single dashboard for all of your shares from your OneDrive. So who have you shared with? whom uh, who has edited something and so you can have better governance of your shares 
you also have a meetings overview and it's actually something that i look forward to um i i have a colleague that are planning a session on offline teams meetings because a teams meeting have context even if it's offline you can add files to it you can add notes you can have the recording so you can actually use the placeholder as in the teams invite or the meeting invite as a storage facility for files or notes or whatever uh, and with the new experience in onedrive you now have all of your files that's part of all of the meetings you were invited to in one overview so you can see who were there when was the meeting which files were shared in that meeting and also access the recordings which i find brilliant and the last bit which i'm really looking forward to trying is that you can now you, you know how you can make files available offline in onedrive on your device but if you have it available online you have to edit it within the office apps as an example now you will be able to make files available offline and edit them in your browser so basically have a file available offline a word file and then you're able to edit it in the browser i have no clue how it will work but i think it's it's it will open up scenarios where where especially frontline workers that only have access to uh, the um, web-based versions will be able to work offline to some extent so that's cool uh, and on the last note we have a few news for windows 365 enterprise the biggest of them being that windows 365 is now available in sweden so you can deploy Ooh. your hosts in sweden which which is good i know that a lot of uh, organizations have asked for it a lot being a handful the ones that are using Windows 365, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's good to see. And at some point, I would also love to have a discussion on when to move from one data center to another. Is it ever worth the while? Indeed. Good topic. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking about moving uh, and moving to Marsh, which the owner of my car brand wants to do. Uh, and Marsh is a planet, so now we'll head to Jupiter Notebooks. That was among the worst segues I've heard. Yeah, absolutely useless, but thank you for trying. <laughs> no, so uh, Jupiter Notebooks is... Surprisingly un unknown outside of um, the data science community, uh, but Ju Jupyter Notebooks is is the way to interact with uh, with data analysis and, and statistical analysis and, and such. So the the point of a Jupyter Notebook is uh, that you have uh, cells and you can either fill the cell with a some code that you can run per cell or mark down language so you can. Mm -hmm document as you go essentially uh, you find this inside of synapse uh, anytime you do a, a notebook inside of synapse that is using essentially um, uh, Jupyter notebooks and it is also the same with azure data studio ads uh, that also runs uh, Jupyter underneath and I, I find Jupyter notebooks to be fantastic because you can literally put not only the code um, but you can also put documentation around the code, mm -hmm. but the output of a cell 
can be stored inside of the the Jupyter notebook, even if it's completely disconnected from whatever you're running it against or offline or whatever. So it's it's all of these things in, in one fell swoop. Now, I said that Jupyter notebooks are used for um, statistical analysis, for instance, if you're running R or running uh, Python on, on data sets, doing machine learning, doing statistical analysis, uh, well, anything with data science. We have, up until now, been forced to use um, third-party uh, visualizations. And while they're powerful, they're sort of kind of tricky to use, especially if you're you're not used to to um, if if you're coming from the Excel world and and the Power BI world, you're going to have a bit of a um, a learning curve, if you will, uh, trying to do um, uh, visualizations with uh, GNU plot, for instance. But now it is possible to add in Power BI inside of one of the cells in a Jupyter notebook. So in essentially just one click of a button while you write some code to import uh, the, the uh, library into Jupyter, and boom, you can have pretty decent visualizations of data that you previously had to do a lot of coding in order to get uh, visuals for. So I think this, this is, it doesn't sound like much, uh, and it's a fairly niche use case, but I, I think it is adding a pretty nice feature. And it is also opening up interesting possibilities going forward where you might not necessarily put this in to a uh, notebook, but you can use the same mechanism to embed this into other bits and pieces. So mm -hmm. I don't have any information mm. about that. Uh, that's just me uh, kind of thinking ahead. Uh, but the way that this is implemented, that should not be um, impossible at all. Haney, did you use Jupiter during your, your math career? I didn't, actually. Well, that felt flat. Yeah, sorry. I'm trying to, like, rack my brain what was the program I used, but cannot remember. MATLAB. The name. Yeah, MATLAB. Exactly. Yeah, everyone is yeah. using MATLAB, and it's a horror to package yeah. that and deploy it. Believe me. Oh. <laughs> Even uh, using it is a little interesting, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> or or intimidating, you could you could say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um let me dive into another thing that I think you're you're gonna find is is way more uh, approachable. So Power BI, when it came out, came out in the desktop and the service was all about sharing uh, your, your dashboards and your reports, right? But we were told in no uncertain terms, and I'm, I really mean that, that, Microsoft said exactly that you should never edit your models in, in the web view. Just because you maybe can-ish, don't, because it sucks. And that's, that's fine, because that's clear. But we've also come to 2023 where we kind of expect the same functionality between a an app if you will on on, on windows and a web um, environment and we've gotten the first step so the first public preview of editing the model view in in the service and i've talked to a couple of the pms and they all say the same thing that they are working flat out to bring as much of the desktop functionality as possible into the uh, service. So suddenly, if you're running a Mac, 
you can do so much more because you cannot run Power BI Desktop on a Mac. And there, there's a lot of limitations, a lot of limitations. And there, there have been a lot of skeptical and, and angry voices uh, raised over the amount of limitations that are there. But hey, it's a public preview. It's it's something that we're going to get. And I, for one, I think it is a wonderful and fantastic uh, step in the right direction. Are there today any licensing limitations in terms of using the desktop client versus using the service? So would there be a licensing benefit of running this in a browser? That is a great question. And the answer is actually no, because mm -hmm. the desktop oh. is not licensed at all. Yeah. It is free for anyone to use. Mm -hmm. And it is not until you want to share mm -hmm. um, reports or consume shared reports that mm -hmm. you need to have a pro or higher license. So this does not impact that at all. In fact, it simplifies things because you don't need to, well, not right now, but going forward, um, I'm hoping that we, I don't think we're going to get away from the desktop and I don't think we want to get away from the desktop, but it would be awesome to be able to use the web um, designer uh, only and, and not have to rely mm -hmm. on the desktop. And um, <laughs> I found a pretty enormous bug in um, Spark. Nice. So, bug hunter. Bug, yeah, and and I mean, you're you're going to be just scared of this, Haney, because you've done some work with with Spark. So create a scenario where you have a pipeline that does a copy data from a SQL server in this case and dumps the result as Parquet files in a data lake. Easy, simple things that you do like literally in, in ten minutes. Then you create a Spark notebook that does nothing but a read from that Parquet file. That's the only thing it does. It brings that information into a data frame and then you do data frame dot show brackets to essentially print the, the contents of the data frame. That's it. That is the entire test environment. Now I can go ahead and break it because if I run the, the, um, uh, the, the pipeline again, with added data to my SQL server, meaning that it's overriding the Parquet files, then Spark will fall over. Because there's something called the intelligent cache in Synapse Spark, which does not exist in, in Databricks. And apparently the intelligent cache is about as clever as a brick because it does not invalidate the cache when there is a difference in the footer, which is what's happening when I'm overriding the, the source file. Mm -hmm. So I spent hours trying to figure out because the error messages are just, you would not believe they have nothing to do with anything. And then I talked to Simon Whiteley, who, who said that, ah, maybe it's the, the intelligent cache. I turn off the intelligence cache and boom. It works. So uh, I'm I'm working on a blog post, and I'm working on creating a, a packaged uh, use case or run run book that I'm going to give to Stain, um, because that's going to be in his uh, lap going forward. So yeah, not impressed. Cool. So are is it is it a <gasps> bug that will remain because it's how it's designed, or will they? fix it i no. i so f from where i'm sitting this is 
an enormous bug because your caching does not re uh, uh, it doesn't invalidate which is the whole point of a cache mm -hmm. if it yeah. touches something that has been changed uh, mm -hmm. so i'm hoping that this is just one of those oh oops fixed oops. it yeah and and not a complete and i i cannot believe they had not seen this uh, so mm. yeah but it's kind of cool you found it yeah well done yeah yeah i'm never going to get those hours back but um <laughs> yeah but, i think but i found it's... another bug as well but i'll i'll i'll, <laughs> I'll be back with that but isn't it quite fascinating that when you do bug bounties for security you can earn significant money on it but if you find bugs in anything else it's like oh thanks yeah exactly <laughs> it's either oh thanks or screw you that's not a bug exactly. and you're back yeah. to it's zero. a feature yeah true <laughs> bug bounties for everything it would improve Indeed. quality yeah 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 as <laughs> I am getting frozen over here just because my next topic is Azure Cold Storage. <laughs> oh, God. Why is everybody comedians today? <laughs> I'm I sorry. I, yeah. This is horrible. I'm no, very sorry. I, it, it, was, it was better than mine, certainly. <laughs> True, but yours was really, really bad. <laughs> so that helps. <laughs> So there is a new public preview that is Azure Cold Storage. And I was reading about it. I'm like, oh, a new storage service? And then I realized, oh, it's actually Azure Blob Storage, but there is just a new tier that has come in. Hmm. So pre previously there has been the hot tier, the cool tier, and the archive tier. And cool and cold, which one is colder? What do you think? <laughs> cold is cooler than cool. Yes, that is true. Cold is cooler than cool. Oh. That is the correct order. I, I keep word. flipping, yeah. flipping. We have the these name for this around. episode. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we definitely do. So it is maybe not as intuitive as the other ones in terms of you know what is hotter tier, etc. <laughs> so the what the tiers mean that the warmer it is, it means that. Uh, <laughs> You have the highest storage costs, but then when you read the data, the cost for that, or you access it, so forth, the cost for that is the lowest. And when you go towards archive, then uh, the price of the storage gets lower, but then the accessing of the data gets higher. And archive tier has this um, capability also that it is for really rarely accessed data, so you don't have an immediate latency requirement. Whereas the cool and cold tier, the cold tier being the new one, those do still have that requirement of being able to fetch the data quite quickly. And there's actually quite good like guidelines from Microsoft on when you should use each one. So hot is pretty much, you know, daily access data every few days, so forth. When you go to the cool tier, uh, the data should be stored for a minimum of 30 days and so forth. So there is kind of guidelines when you should be using each. And I do see that there is quite, hasn't been quite a gap between the cool and archive tier in terms of like the difference between them. So the cold tier does bring in like a mid option in between where you don't quite want to archive it and have the latency effects in place. But 
you would need something cooler than cool. <laughs> yes. Hopefully I get somehow the logic in my mind how which is cooler. So we, we're going to get the, the blob storage hell freezing over storage tier. Exactly. Exactly. But isn't that when you migrate from hot <laughs> to colder? Isn't that when hell freezes over? Oh, so it's we, the migration storage tier. Mm, yeah, we need exactly we need the the hoth storage tier. <laughs> no, please. Was that a no, Star Wars reference? No ideas. Yes, oh, it was. I completely hoth missed is it. the ice planet in in the Empire yeah. Strikes Back. Everybody knows that, right? Yeah. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I have grown up in a bubble, I guess, or something. Should we then have oh, a, a that tier? That is another story. <laughs> yeah. What, what's the, the um? Ta- should we then have a tonton stomach tier as well? Yeah, that's that's going to be warmer for sure. Yeah, for a while. Mm. <laughs> then it cools. All right. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Go ahead. On to the next topic of serverless uh, SQL in Databricks. So Databricks is, for example, one of the tools where you can use notebooks. And they're not kind of the native Jupyter notebooks that Alexander had been talking about, but it is based based on the same same principle. And Databricks has been kind of developing hand-in-hand with uh, Synapse, if we look at it. So whenever we've gotten some capabilities in Synapse, then they have shortly followed in Databricks and vice versa. And so the Databricks side has come more from the data science side. So, for example, using Spark-based compute to work on your data. And where it has had some catching to do is the SQL capabilities. And there has been this... Uh, SQL warehouses around for quite a bit already. And the newest addition is the serverless SQL Databricks, serverless SQL warehouse in Databricks. And it is essentially what it's saying on the tin. So serverless meaning that um, it can scale according to what you need. You don't need to specify any specific amount of compute, but it will allocate it on the fly for you. Uh, you do need to consider that the serverless SQL, because it has this nature that you're not allocating anything, it is actually kind of like a multi-tenant service within Databricks. And this is kind of the first area in Databricks where I see a little maybe uh, duct tape <laughs> solutions in place. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that because it is a serverless service, it is actually managed within the Databricks, uh, kind of the Databricks hosted side of things. And that means that if you, for example, want to protect your data lake with firewall rules, then you have to enable their specific network spaces to have that serverless SQL warehouse be able to access your Azure data lake. The nice thing is that they've done it so that those subnet uh, IDs pointers do not change, so you do not have to have like uh, some kind of automated process in place. There are some limitations in place uh, that you do need to consider. So you need premium tier on in your Databricks workspace, and then, for example, it does not support the legacy Metastore, meaning the Hive Metastore. So you do need to have then you need a catalog in place if you want to use a Metastore. So. It's a nice new flavor into the mix. Uh, I've actually gotten a chance to already use it, and it does work really well. And setting up the configuration with the data lake isn't 
isn't hurt at all. So it is looking good so far, at least. No, I'm I'm, I'm curious to see where Databricks is going to take this because, as you said, Databricks comes from the data science side, and they they've been playing catch up with the SQL side of things. Um, and I, I I absolutely agree with you when you said duct tapey. Uh, so I'm I'm curious to see where where they're taking it because I'm not entirely sure that I I, I agree with the way they're doing it. Yeah, and you know I did not actually realize that it had been in preview still to be honest <laughs> because I had already been using it and then then I was like oh now it's generally available okay cool. <laughs> Then uh, one of my favorite topics, Azure Container Apps. Uh, there's been a bunch of updates that have come to that side as well in the past two weeks. It's funny because first I looked at the updates and I thought I talked about them the last time, that, but then I realized, oh, these are new updates actually. <laughs> so uh, looking at Azure Container Apps, it is definitely one of the, you know, the services that is developing in a really high speed. And it is something that Microsoft is putting a lot of effort into. So there's actually a few almost like network level uh, improvements that has have been made into Azure Container Apps. So you're able to put in inbound IP restrictions. So very mm -hmm. similar to kind of NSG rules that you can put a list of what which IPs are allowed and so forth and which are not. Then there is also now TCP support or Azure Container Apps, because actually previously there was a limitation that you could only use HTTP or HTTPS protocols uh, for when you have your container and have an ingress for it. Yes, Alexander's face is saying it all. It is mm. a little surprising, but now there is TCP added as well. <laughs> so in a, in a way, really like little thing, and you kind of think it should be there, but you know, uh, it is a very new service. So still some of these kind of basic sounding things are coming in. And then lastly, we have session affinity for container apps. So um, if you have HTTP-based workloads, then you can have these sticky sessions configured for your application without you having to write any code. So the platform takes care of it for you to, so that a single client will always be directed to the same container app replica that you have in place. So just makes that a bit easier for you. Now now my head that doesn't understand container talk at all starts to spin. Uh, but I would love to follow up on that at some point because it in, in my head isn't containers supposed to like disappear when you're not using them? And where is then yeah. the data stored? Is that what's yes. called date dark data? <laughs> is it <So> disappears? <laughs> <laughs> But you're onto something, Simon. You definitely, yeah. like, when you run containers, you have to ensure that your data is, uh, you know, decoupled from the container. You don't want it to disappear with a container itself. So you need to ensure that if you have data storage needs that need to actually be kind of be there, even if a container goes down, you have to take care of that. We can get back to it, maybe. Yeah, in, in, in the interest of time, instance. we'll take that another time because <laughs> I, ne I need to spin up more of my serverless servers uh, in my mind uh, <laughs> to be able to make this work. All right. There's so many things that I could say about persistent storage to that head of yours, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> yes. it, Let's leave let, it for another time. <laughs> exactly. 
for Thank sure. Thank you. I appreciate your kindness in the matter. <laughs> and on that bombshell, <laughs> it is definitely time to end. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in uh, another week. And then it is going to be an interview with Jeroen uh, Terhet, uh, one of the, the uh, PMs uh, of the Parmii product. Nice. Look forward to that in, in a week. And until then, have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Nidibin Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at nidibintech.com. <laughs>